You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. Hi, welcome to Lesson 6 in International Catholic University's course on the norms of Catholic faith and doctrine. And we're talking today about tradition. In the last class, we ended by just giving a little preview of tradition. And we, we showed that in the New Testament, there are positive and negative appearances of that word. And the, the idea of tradition has been a major bone of contention between Catholics and Protestants um, beginning in, in the Reformation period. And so I think it's important to understand that there's roots for suspicion of tradition, and there's also roots in the New Testament of tremendous uh, love for tradition. And both sides need to be understood. The New Testament's negative about traditions, pro, you know, ideas and t teachings that are handed on and become normative, that have their origin in human ideas and become opposed to, in conflict with, God's clearly inspired commandments. Okay? That's the problem that we're seeing in the New Testament. On the other hand, tradition is a normal word used positively for things that God initiates and are passed down from person to person, from an eyewitness to apostle to the, to the faithful, down throughout history. So you see that in Paul, uh, and, and you also see the, the negatives uh, um, when it comes to the human traditions that get in the way. So anyway, we need to take account of this as we look at the theology of tradition. We also saw that the etymology of tradition in Latin, the word tradition, there are two words, one tradita, which is stuff that is handed on, the, the, the things that are handed over, handed down, and there's the process, traditio. And not surprisingly, therefore, in the history of theology, some people have stressed, some theologians have really stressed the content of what is handed down, and others have stressed the process whereby it's handed down. So let's talk about that. There are some people on one extreme that think of tradition as stable content and, and content alone, stuff that's handed down. Now, I will point out the Council of Trent uh, mentions traditions in the plural, practices, ideas, truths, customs that are handed down. It talks about in the plural. And, and so, you know, there are some of, of these customs and some of these practices that are of apostolic origin. Others are of ecclesiastical origin. Okay, apostolic origin. What would be of apostolic origin that's handed down as a custom that we may not find in the New Testament clearly? One would be the sign of the cross. I believe that there are indications of the sign of the cross in a number of places in the New Testament, but it's not absolutely clear. What does seem clear in the writings of the early uh, fathers is that the, the apostles were the ones who taught the Christians to make the sign of the cross originally on the forehead like this as part of the baptismal rite. There are other things like confirmation. After baptism, a sealing, a, a prayer uh, whereby hands were laid upon a new Christian and that Christian was sealed with oil, usually with the sign of the cross in the forehead. That's a custom that's not clearly mandated in the New Testament, but appears to be of apostolic origin. 
So there's a number of, of customs that, e that are highly possible or probable of probably of apostolic origin. There are other things of ecclesiastical origin. In other words, the church developed a practice after the time of the apostles. For example, the rosary is a devotional tradition that is clearly of ecclesiastical origin. It's actually popular origin. It's not the leaders of the church, but the faithful who began the development of the rosary. There are other things that are ecclesiastical origin, such as the, the law that honoring the Sabbath means going to Mass on Sunday. That's clearly a command of the church. It's not a command of, of God. The, the, the command to honor the Sabbath is a command of God, but not necessarily to go to Mass. On Sunday. So anyway, there are certain practices that are part of Catholic tradition, certain ideas, teachings, customs, and they have different origins. Now, things of human origin aren't bad. It's what's bad is when things of human origin get into conflict with things of divine origin. When the human is put in front of the divine, that's not good. That's what Christ and Paul were, were against in the, in the New Testament. But it's important to understand that there's nothing in the New Testament that's against human traditions that support or carry on or transmit practices, ideas that, 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 that really give life and that are part of, of Christian life, okay? So let's look at all these ideas or all these practices, traditions, those are the things that are passed on, you know, in this view of, of tradition as stable content. That's the, this is the way which people think. And this was a common way to think between the, the Council of Trent and the end of the 19th century. People thought of tradition as a collection of things, of practices and customs passed on. And some people even thought that these traditions were practices and customs that are not attested to in the New Testament. Uh, the, and some people made them into an independent source of revelation that couldn't be criticized or questioned. Everyone's always met people who just make sacrosanct anything that was handed on to them by their father or grandfather. You know, if your father or your grandfather did something a certain way, you know, that's the way it needed to be done. And some people put those kinds of customs and traditions on a par with sacred scripture. Uh, we're not talking about theologians now. Maybe some theologians did, but we're talking about many of the faithful. All right. Traditionalists do this. They put, you know, when we talk about traditionalists, I'm talking about now some traditionalists who would say that the Second Vatican Council was invalid. People who um, are very angry about changes that came to the church because of the Second Vatican Council. Those kinds of traditionalists put all received doctrines and customs on the same level and speak as if the usages of the 19th century had existed from the beginning. Uh, John Paul II criticizes people that have this kind of mentality, and, and you can read that in, in the Christian faith, number 265b. These folks uh, in the last 200, well, last 100 years uh, or so have been called integrists or integralists. If you change one thing about the Catholic culture, you compromise the whole thing. You have to pass on the whole thing, integral and whole and entire, as we got it in the 1950s or so. That that's mentality is called the integralist mentality. Um, and it's fascinating that, that you know, integralists have a view of tradition as a bunch of practices or ideas. Many times the arch foes of Catholic integralists, namely Protestants who are critical of the church. There are some Protestants who would see the doctrines, uh, this tradition in the same way as doctrines and practices added to the gospel, much as the Pharisees added stuff to the Mosaic law. You know, both groups, the traditionalist Catholics, 
uh, and, and Protestant critics would see tradition as a bunch of things, practices, ideas passed on as stable content alone. Now, there's another group of folks, particularly people uh, in the last 100, 120 years, that see tradition more as the process, the dynamic process whereby a, a new generation is introduced to previous stages of development and equipped to carry on growth and change further in the tradition, in, in the living out of the Christian life. Okay, so The people that we talked about a few minutes ago so, who see tradition as passing on practices, they see tradition as a conservative kind of force. These kinds of people who focus on the process, they see tradition as a dynamic force that's progressive, that, you know, people pick up the torch, change things a little, pass it on. People pick it up, change a little, pass it on. So there's a dynamic process of growth that's, that's, that is the focus in this kind of a view of tradition. Now, the people who take this to an extreme and, and uh, go all the way with this, we call modernists. They, they totally emphasize process. Around the, the turn of the 20th century, there were many Catholic and Protestant modernists. But there's no stable content at all to tradition. It, it's just total process. Jesus is a point of departure. He's not a norm. So Christianity today can be something totally different. You know, nowadays, uh, uh, kids are into morphs. You know, it, it, people changing into animals, animals changing into people. It's, it's a common uh, kind of theme in many science fiction movies and series. And, and these, this kind of approach to tradition sees it as, as morphing, as totally changing and transforming with no, at the end point, no relationship to the early point. And that's definitely a problem. This kind of progressivism is also criticized by John Paul II. In, in the same place, you can read it in the Christian faith 265a. Now the fascinating thing is, John Paul is criticizing these two groups, the arch-traditionalists and these modernist progressivists, for the same reason, because they failed to understand tradition. Tradition was explained by a Catholic scholar around the turn of the 20th century as really being both and, being both stable content and a process that, is, that involves growth and progression. And the name of that scholar was Maurice Blondel. He wrote a book called History and Dogma. And he was trying to deal with the battle between the two kinds of people we just talked about. The two kinds of people, the arch-conservative types, traditionalists, and the modernists types who were going to abandon the past. And he saw that both had a piece of truth, but both were, were, were extremists. And what he was saying is, and I think his teaching has made its way, his perspective has made its way into Catholic theology, into the Second Vatican Council, uh, even into the Catechism. But he saw, really, that, that tradition is about a rich content that is handed on by a dynamic process. That, that tradition is alive, and it carries something of great value, but it, gr it, it moves, and it, it grows. It doesn't morph and change and deform, but it, it, it expands as it moves forward into, into history. It's kind of like a river. If you think about a river, a river is moving and it starts in a source. And as it moves and p more tributaries flow into it, it picks up strength and power and depth and breadth. And that's kind of like the river of tradition, beginning in the source of Jesus of Nazareth and the, his life, death, and resurrection and flowing forward into our own day. But it's moving. 
And, you know, I think it's a great image. Every image limps, but I think it's a great image to kind of explain a little bit about tradition. A river, if you think about it, if you jump in it and you're swimming in it, it carries you forward, but it still links you to the source. That river that you're in goes all the way back to the source, and you're connected to the source through that river. The river gives life. And tradition is not just, uh, you know, uh, something that is a bunch of barnacles on the ship. Uh, tradition really is life-giving, and, and as a river gives life. A river is enriched by tributaries. The Catholic tradition has been enriched. It comes from the source of Christ in the gospel, but has been enriched also by nations and national customs flowing into it, and, and the, the wisdom of Greek philosophy uh, in, in, at its best flowing into it. There's a lot of wonderful things that have enriched the tradition of, the, of God's people. Um, but uh, you can swim in it. You, 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 can, you can play in it. You can enjoy it. it you, you can uh, be bathed in it. But unfortunately, tradition also, a uh, river can be muddied. It can be fouled. And tradition, the, the, the living tradition of the church with a capital T is, is always pure. But the experience of tradition, the actual historical experience of tradition, sometimes traditions do get muddied. The tradition in the church has gotten muddied and gotten fouled in some ways by tributaries that have not been so good that have led into it. Okay, So there's a lot, that image is a neat image of, of the way tradition works, I think. It's important to understand something about uh, what Blondel saw. Blondel was writing, he was a philosopher, and he's writing about the transmission of knowledge and how we know things. And one of the things he pointed out is that you can never fully reduce to writing all the knowledge you have. You can never actually even reduce it to explicit speech. And if you think about it, there's a lot of knowledge that you can only gain by living in it. Think about the way in which you learned English. I'm assuming English is your native tongue. Let, let's just say, in case English isn't your native tongue, let's say the way in which you learn your native tongue. As a child, you were born into a context where it was being spoken, and you were immersed in it, and you listened to it and absorbed it. You didn't go to a classroom and study it. You just were immersed in it. And as time went on, you began speaking it. And as time went on, you began speaking it even with proper grammar. It may have taken a few years, but ultimately you learn a vocabulary and you learn grammar and you learn ways to speak it. And you even learn an accent, depending on what part of the country or what kind of the world you lived in. But all those things you learn by absorbing it, not by explicit study. And if someone were to ask you to explain English grammar, the vast majority of you couldn't explain it. A lot of you have no idea what an objective pronoun is, the nominative case versus objective case. You don't know what a gerund is or a participle is, but you're using them all the time, and you know the difference between them through experience. You know that it's not right to say, you know, me want to go to the store. You know you have to say I instead of me, but I bet most of you can't explain why. And, and that is an illustration that a lot of what we know we can't express in explicit speech. There are other examples. For example, typing. You learn where the keys are. Uh, eventually, you, you just know where the keys are. Your fingers go there. You don't even focus on it. And you can't exactly explain how you know where the keys are. Driving. It, it, you have to focus on it a great deal, but ultimately, it, you can't explain what you know about driving. You just do it. Well, it just goes to show in human life, there's a lot that we know that we can't explicitly explain. We've absorbed it. 
And what Blondell saw was both sides were missing the fact that tradition is a way of passing on knowledge that's unique in human life. We see it with apprentices and masters. If you want to learn a craft, you can study books, but you have to live with the master. And by living with the master and working with the master, carpenter, plumber, doesn't matter what, you absorb the knowledge of the craft. He passes on to you the knowledge of the craft, and you can only gain that knowledge through living experience in the midst of, of, of doing that activity with someone who knows how to do it. It just it, It's very clear that written words, explicit words, have limits in what they can convey to people. That's what Blondell discovered, really, as a philosopher, and it gave the church new insight into the uniqueness of, tra of tradition as a way of passing on a mode of passing on the knowledge of Christ. And what I'm saying here really comes down to this. God, the Bible, grew out of the living tradition of the church. It expresses the living tradition of the church, and it was never intended to be on its own outside of a living tradition because it has its limits. But tradition has its limits. Tradition can be fouled. It can be muddied. It can be changed. Scripture is stable with written words that are fixed. So tradition can always be measured by Scripture. It's a rather phenomenal thing to understand that God has provided two modes of transmission of revelation that complement each other, that go together. Okay, so what is the content? If we're thinking about uh, you know, this, new, this new understanding this, uh, that Blondell had of tradition, what, what, is, what is the content of, 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 of tradition? Is it uh, just explicit ideas, teachings, practices? It's more than that. It's that and more. For, for Blondell, the, the content of tradition would be intimate, lived, implicit, or tacit knowledge of Christ, the risen Lord, transmitted from generation to generation. It's a way of seeing, a way of walking, a way of knowing that goes beyond explicit understanding and expression. Why is it that kids pick up the accent of their parents and the way they speak English? It's by living in it. It's passed on through what we, we often would say through osmosis. Well, the content of tradition is a living experience of Christ that's passed on by per person to person, generation to generation. It's a different mode of knowing Christ. It's a tacit knowledge, okay? It, and tradition imparts a skill. It imparts an art of finding God in the doctrines, in the documents, in the practices. It shapes the Christian's power of perception and discernment. So it, it, there's more to it than simply the written communication of truth. It's a communication of a habit, a way of seeing, a way of thinking. It's a generational handing on of what is known implicitly or tacitly by the community of Christ. It enables, to see, for it enables a person to see what the church sees. That's, in a, short, in a nutshell, what you know, Blondell would see as tradition. And when we talk about tacit knowledge or implicit knowledge, there's another philosopher I refer you to, and his name is Michael Polanyi. He writes a lot about this dimension, the tacit dimension of, of human knowledge. Okay? We're talking about a natural reality now, a natural reality that you find going on in crafts, that you find going on in, in, in uh, ethnic groups. Um, but here we have a supernatural object, the life of Christ. And we have the Holy Spirit. In Catholic tradition with a capital T, we have the Holy Spirit guiding the process. And we'll see there's also 
uh, uh, people guiding the process of this passing on of tradition, and namely that the, the people are the bishops of the Catholic Church, what we call the magisterium. But let's just go back, when you speak, speak of magisterium, let's just take a look at the Second Vatican Council for a minute. The Second Vatican Council takes for the first time the opportunity to really teach about tradition. Dei Verbum, or the, the divine, uh, excuse me, the dogmatic constitution on divine revelation, that document is a, a really a, a watershed document for the theology of tradition. Prior to that document, in Catholic official teaching, tradition was always honored, but it was never defined. It was never even described very, very well. Vatican II, thanks to Blondell, and also thanks to Yves Congar, a, a great scholar who was a, a peritus or an expert at the council, a scholar who took Blondell's work, put it together with his own research, um, historical research, and wrote a great book prior to the council called Tradition and Traditions. That book by Congar had a tremendous impact on many of the fathers of the council. Uh, so all that we're talking about here from Blondell and, and, uh, and as it passes through Congar, it made its way into conciliar teaching. And I'd like to share a little bit with you. Uh, I'd encourage you to take a look at Yves Congar's book. It's in the Course Bibliography. And also uh, you can see Blondell's writing in the Course Bibliography as well. Uh, that writing um, is uh, Ap Apologetics and Dogma is the name of, 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 the, of the book in which that can be found. But anyway, let's look at, the, at Vatican II and its teaching on the content of tradition. Dei Verbum uh, number 7 says this, Tradition involves the tacit dimension, really, in that the apostles handed on what they received. I'm going to quote the council right now. They what they received, whether from the lips of Christ, from his way of life and his works, or whether they had learned it at the prompting of the Holy Spirit. There's a kind of a global dimension. The apostles lived with Christ for three years. They saw the expression on his face. They heard the tone in his voice. Many things that can't come through in writing. They saw all that. And tradition is them passing on everything that they saw and experienced in his works, in his words. And then after he, Jesus rose and ascended to the Father, through the work of the Holy Spirit, as they meditated on what Christ said and did. All that is passed on in tradition. Here's another description by Dei Verbum, by the Council, of the content of tradition. Quote, everything that serves to make the people of God live their lives in holiness and increase their faith. That's, that's a huge global kind of a content. Everything that serves to make God's people live their lives of holiness. That means there's lots of means uh, to spiritual growth. Lots of, let's say, customs, practices, things that aren't absolutely part of revelation themselves, but support structures. Okay, theological traditions, spiritual traditions, ways of praying. All these things are part of the tradition. Okay, Dei Verbum 8 talks about tradition as passing on doctrine, life, and worship. We're going to talk about doctrine a little bit in the next class. Here's what it says about um, another beautiful description about tradition's content. Tradition's riches are poured out in the practice and the life of the church, in her belief, and in her prayer. Now notice, all, this is all life stuff here. The belief of the church, yes, that's doctrine. 
uh, that's dogma that we would typically recognize as dogma. But tradition is, is expressed and poured out in the, the church's everyday practice, its life, its worship, its prayer. All that is, is one of the ways that tradition expresses itself, and all that is passed on in tradition. Another place, tradition it carries on and passes on, quote, all that the church is and believes. I find it fascinating that the council talks about the growth of tradition, that tradition grows. If tradition includes all sorts of means to help enrich the lives, the prayer lives, the devotional lives, the liturgical lives of the people of God, then it grows over time. Uh, and the Catholic tradition is therefore extremely lush in the you know, 2,000 years worth of experience of Christ and various means by which the gro growth in Christ can be accelerated. All those things are passed on in tradition. There's a beautiful, beautiful text on tradition I would recommend you to. I don't have time to read it right now, but there's a, a wonderful letter that John Paul II wrote about the beauty of the Eastern Christian tradition. Orientale Lumen is the name of the letter. And I would encourage you to read that because I think there we find after the Catechism was written, after Vatican II, I find one of the most beautiful descriptions of tradition. It's, a, it's almost poetic, uh, the description that you find there. Let me talk about uh, one very famous distinction, a famous, famous distinction that um, was made by, uh, by um, Eve Congar in his book. He entitled his book, Tradition with a capital T and Traditions with a small t. And what he saw was this. There needs to be a distinction made between the various theological, disciplinary, liturgical, devotional traditions, on the one hand, various practices, that you know, have various times of origin throughout the history of the church. These things can be witnesses to, they can be embodiments of, and expressions of the universal Catholic tradition with a capital T. The tradition is this great flow, this great river, uh, that is passing on the experience of the risen Lord from age to age, generation to generation. And that great T, that capital T, is expressed in these little T's, in these little traditions and practices. Okay, If you look at the various rites of the Catholic Church. The Roman rite has certain customs and traditions. The Eastern rites, the Maronite rite, has different vestments, different little liturgical customs. The Byzantine rite has a different way of decorating its church, different customs, okay? So all these different customs and traditions and decorations and vestments and things, they're traditions with a small t. But the living liturgical tradition of the church, the experience of Christ in the Eucharist, that's a large t, that's universal, okay? And you have to distinguish between these two because sometimes the small, the traditions with a small t, they come and they go. They're useful for a period of time, and after a while, they're not useful anymore. Okay? But the, the tradition with a capital T continues on. There's been many different ways of expressing the Eucharist all throughout uh, 2,000 years, but the Eucharist has always been the center of Catholic life. That's tradition with a capital T. Okay? Where do you, how do you locate tradition with a capital T? Way back in the 5th century, St. Vincent of Lorraine came up with a great statement. He said, that which is held ubique semper et ab omnibus. Tradition with a capital T that is non-negotiable, that we can't change, is what you find everywhere, always, and, by, and from everyone. In other words, something that's universal. A tradition with a capital T is something that is in all regions of the church, not in just one region, in all ages of the church, not just in one period, and accepted by everyone. 
That's tradition with a capital T. Traditions with small t's can be retained, modified, abandoned. They're, they can be regional. They can be, you know, just for a, a short period of time. And it's very important that, you, that we understand the distinction between these two things. Okay? So th there is a way in which traditions with a small t sometimes need to be purified or changed. And Second Vatican Council changed a lot of them. And a lot of people got upset. Why? Sometimes they got upset because some of those traditions with a small t, they did not understand were time condition and expendable and identified them with tradition with a large t. Sometimes it was because they were integralists. They thought that everything was of equal value and couldn't make these distinctions. Uh, I'm very grateful for the Second Vatican Council in helping us in the catechism to make these distinctions. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.